Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me. I hope your weekend is going well, wherever you are. Um, I am uh, following, as always, the Ukraine proxy war. Although with so many other horrible things in the news, it's difficult to uh, to stay focused just on that. But it's um, still raging. And no matter the tragedies going on elsewhere, this to me still is the... Well, I don't want to say the biggest tragedy in the world, but it's certainly a major tragedy. And unless it comes to an end, it threatens much worse. And it looks like after three months of this war, more than more than three months, when it comes to the establishment circles that have cheered it on to date and offered a very rosy picture of how, from the U.S. perspective, how badly Russia was doing, I think reality is starting to sink in. And we're seeing in the heart of the establishment, the New York Times and the Washington Post, some reports that are beginning to acknowledge that this war is not going as well for the Ukrainian side and its uh, U.S. allies as we've been told. So a couple of articles I want to mention. The first was in the Washington Post, and it's the most detailed picture I think we've seen inside uh, establishment media of inside these Ukrainian battalions that are fighting Russia, partly because Ukraine's been so good at censoring journalists, not preventing them from reaching the front lines, not preventing them from reaching hospitals. And so there hasn't been very much reporting on the state of Ukrainian fighters directly. A lot of things are filtered through, you know, Ukrainian state controlled uh, sources. But in this case, the Washington Post spoke to the head of a battalion who had just actually abandoned their battalion because they felt as if they were being woefully under-equipped. So let me just read a little bit of this article. It says this, after three months of war, this company of 120 men is down to, is down to 54 because of deaths, injuries, and desertions. The volunteers were civilians before Russia invaded on February 24th. And they never expected to be dispatched to one of the most dangerous front lines in eastern Ukraine. They quickly found themselves in the crosshairs of war, feeling abandoned by their military superiors and struggling to survive. And one window into that struggle is the Washington Post reports that for food, they were literally given each a potato a day. That's it. That's what they had to survive on, a potato a day. So no wonder there's been so many desertions. And so many casualties because they just don't have the capacity to fight a much more well-equipped Russian army. And that's, you know, speaks to a core concern among those of us who oppose the proxy war that we said from the start, which is that as U.S. officials used to admit back when Obama's policy was not to arm Ukraine, Antony Blinken back, you know, five years ago, six years ago, longer than that now, would say that there's no point in engaging with Russia militarily in Ukraine because Russia will always be able to escalate and overmatch Ukraine, no matter what the U.S. and its allies do. But for this proxy war, that very obvious judgment has been discarded. And now Antony Blinken is responsible for implementing the opposite policy, which is flooding Ukraine with weapons. And so the result is leading Ukrainian battalions like the one profiled in the Washington Post totally abandoned. And the head of that battalion who spoke to the Washington Post after doing that was arrested because obviously this this article did not make the Ukrainian war effort look very good. So that's one example. 
And um, it's leading to articles like in the New York Times headlined uh, this. How does it end? Fissures emerge over what constitutes victory in Ukraine. And this article goes on to just talk about how, you know, there are some hardliners, which is pretty much the dominant faction in Washington, which does not want to see this war end until, in the words of Lloyd Austin, Russia is weakened. So this has nothing really to do, or not just to do with helping Ukraine defend itself, but also dealing a fatal wound to Russia, which is a much different story. And is basically a recipe for a longer war. In the process, you not only have Ukraine being destroyed, you have all the consequences to the global economy um, unfolding, as we're seeing now with rising prices on commodities and all the other spillover effects. But what the Times talks about here is that there are people who are not totally on board with the D.C. consensus, including, by the way, Henry Kissinger, who said that Ukraine should make territorial concessions to Russia. And what he means is, is that in the territories of Ukraine, where the majority of the population doesn't want to live under the Ukrainian government, as these territories have made clear since 2014, after the U.S. backed coup, in those territories, that's what Ukraine should be willing to let go. And for saying that, Kissinger obviously elicited a huge controversy, being called a Putin apologist. Uh, Zelensky condemned him. And uh, even people on the left, like Matt Dusk, was saying that you know, if you if you are in league with Kissinger here, then you should rethink your position. The problem with that, though, is, is Matt, people like Matt Tess don't consider that they're in league with the entire Republican leadership, with Lindsey Graham, with Mitt Romney, with every single neocon think tank in Washington, with George W. Bush and Liz Cheney. And the point to make about Kissinger is that if you find yourself on the right of Henry Kissinger when it comes to war, and that's definitely time, I think, to be rethinking where you stand. And Kissinger is a, whatever you want to say of him, you can, you know, he's a mass murderer, but he's also a realist. And his goal has always been to create a, a fissure between Russia and China. And he's seeing that erode. So he's even seeing strategically this being a disaster for his main concern, which is U.S. hegemony. But uh, the war fever right now in Washington is so strong that voices like his are are not welcome yet, but at least they're being expressed. So at least from someone inside the establishment, we're hearing dissent like that, which I think is significant. And it's leading to the New York Times also, they had an editorial a few days ago, basically saying that, um, that quote, the, the Biden administration should make clear to Kiev that quote, there are, there is a limit to how far the U S and NATO will go to confront Russia and limit to the arms, money, and political support they can muster. And I don't think that this is because New York Times all of a sudden has changed its mind about proxy wars. It totally supports the proxy war. But I think they're recognizing that this is not working, that Russia is just too dominant and too determined to achieve its aims in Ukraine, which is basically enforcing uh, neutrality, imposing neutrality on Ukraine so that it cannot join a hostile military alliance and putting an end to the Donbass war that's been going on for eight years. And on that point, I want to just make one final point. It's obviously um, not uh, the way we want the world to work, where other countries can seize territory by force, which is what the end game looks like here in Ukraine. That's not the kind of world we want. But the problem is, it's a it's it's unfortunately a result of the U.S. and Ukraine, in my opinion, people might disagree here, 
not being willing to make the con- concessions necessary to end the war in the Donbass for the last eight years. So if you don't like this outcome where now Ukraine is going to have to give up, you know, officially Crimea, which has pretty much been the case since 2014, where there was no way Russia would ever give that back after they seized it in response to the coup. And everybody in the Russian political spectrum, including Navalny, essentially supports the annexation of Crimea. So that's a red line for Russia. That's just never going to be crossed. Um, but if you don't like, you know, Ukraine ceding territory in the Donbass to Russia, then what you should have been doing is joining with Russia in the last eight years and calling for the implementation of Minsk II. You can say a lot of things about Russia, but I don't think you can accuse them of undermining Minsk II. I th- you know, the accord that was reached in 2015 that was supposed to end the war in the Donbass, Russia was an advocate of that accord because it said nothing about Crimea, so that would have stayed in Russian hands, but it would have kept the Donbass inside Ukrainian territory. So it would have kept, other, aside from Crimea, Ukraine's sovereign borders intact. All it would have done was given those breakaway republics some limited autonomy. But it was Ukraine, as I understand the history, with U.S. backing that refused to implement Minsk too, and basically dragged its feet. And this war, this awful war now, to me, is the result of that. So it's not a good outcome when another country can seize another territory by force, but we also can't divorce it from the context that comes before it. And I think that context includes Ukraine, get, you know, basically abandoned and undermined the, the, the best chance it had to to end this war and prevent a Russian invasion, which was implementing Minsk too. And now it looks like as a result of that, it's going to lose a lot more territory than it already has. So that is my opening rant. Let's open it up to some calls. Great to see everybody here. And Eric, you're up first. It's AM Live! That's right. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? All right, so I'm just uh, um, agreeing with you on the topic. And um, so as for Matt Duss, I don't know, I I was funnily reminded of, I don't know if you remember this, but when Tom Cruise was having the interview with Matt Lauer, and uh, it was about Scientology, and Tom Cruise said, Matt, Matt, you're glib. You're glib, Matt. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what I, my reaction to Matt Duss's statement. It's just glib. It's just a silly yeah. glib statement. And, you know, what it reveals is someone who's not, you know, really... Uh, it's the type of thing where people are... I think a lot of times people do this in the discourse where they're just kind of openly um, bragging about flattening nuance. You know, you hear that a lot about things like... Um, I remember one of Ryan Grimm's reactions to, like, you know, Kay... Um, what's her name? Kay Iverson... Um, she does this whole beautifully researched bit about, you know, options for, you know, peace in Ukraine and stuff. And then it cuts to Ryan Grimm and he's like, well, yeah, but Putin invaded Ukraine. So there's that. And it's like, OK, you're just performatively glib so that you can do a whole George W. Bush style. I don't do nuance. You know, I don't do nuance. Um, and that's just, you know, it's rampant. I'm not saying that any political faction has a monopoly on that type of, you know, thinking. So that's what I think about Matt Duss, and it's, you know, it's a shame. There's another thing about Matt Duss is that, um, you know, he kind of also threw Max Blumenthal under the bus a a while back in a publication called Democracy Journal, Um, and it was ridiculous because he made a false equivalency between what Max Blumenthal writes and then what um, this guy who's a real apparatchik for Israel writes. And uh, anyway, so I don't know. There's been reasons to mistrust him, but there's a question of, you know, I don't know. I mean, 
I, I, I tend to wonder if Bernie picks up the phone and wants to get on the phone with Biden, does Biden pick up that call, at least just to listen to him, if not to actually do anything? But, you know, if there's a way that the Bernie-Biden relationship and as such the Matt-Just relationship, you know, you get close to power and, of course, there's that, you know, power corrupts, so... And then as for um, Scott Ritter, I also wanted to make a note about Scott Ritter to, with you because it's funny, you know, I like Scott Ritter, but I have noticed, you know, his shift um, um, over the course of this war. And so initially he was saying, well, these people don't have, everyone's saying the Russian playbook, the Russian playbook. It's like, these people don't have a Russian playbook. And it's like, sh you know, that was a good point. But then he started saying something interesting. He, said, he started saying what Russia is doing right now is very literary. It's by the book. And I'm just like, wait a minute. I, mean, I like you, Scott, but it's a little inconsistent. <laughs> Because now lately, what he's been saying actually has been he's been a little oh gosh I always forget is it bullish or bearish when you're negative but <laughs> he's been a little uh, whatever ish I'm, I'll say bearish because you don't want to encounter a bear I guess so I'll say he's been bearish on the Russia war just because he he seemed to have buy into the maximalist case I think of that Russia was going to fully demilitarize and fully denazify and yeah destroy like, perhaps even remove Ukraine as like a modern state or whatever. But I don't know. Now's the time. I mean, you know, want to reevaluate what the war aims were. And I look at, you know, what I initially thought was that, OK, you know, um, in terms of levels of acceptability, because I think it's very good to not be OK with borders being changed, you know, through war. It's not the ideal circumstance and we should have a reflexive um you know, distaste for that. But my, my initial thought was, OK, if he takes the Luhansk and Donetsk republics, um, you know, and, you know, they have their little referendums, um, which are semi-legitimate. But, you know, in any case, um, if he gets some popular support for that, then that's, you know, then that would be a limited war aim that would sort of explain why he isn't flattening Kiev and all that, um, as opposed to being and not using, you know, the full strength of the military. But then I also think that now when we see on the ground, it's, he's also trying to get that land bridge, right, for Crime, to Crimea from those republics, which to my mind seems less legitimate because I don't think the, in those areas they had the majority Russian support before the war. But um, in any case, those were just some thoughts I had. And um, if you noticed uh, that shift in Ritter or if you ever thought about, you know, if you have your trusted dust before, I'm curious. I, uh, I've heard people being critical of Scott Ritter's, uh, apparent shift, but I, I, I haven't seen the shift that I think other people have picked up. I just think he said that the, the Ukrainian side is doing better than Russia expected and Russia has not cut off supply lines and that spells trouble for Russia unless they can, because now, you know, and it, this was just reported that Biden is approving long range missiles to Ukraine that previously he had resisted. So that that's what I picked up from Ritter in terms of what his analysis was uh, was saying, but maybe I missed something. And in terms, yeah, that he thought he, he thought he was going to cut the supply lines, and then he he isn't. So he I think did. that's what he's yeah yeah saying. Yeah. I think you're right. And did I ever trust Matt Dust? No, um, but um, it's it's um, you know I have to at least he recognizes. Palestinian human rights, which is better than most people in Washington. So that he has that going for him. But yes, you're right. He did write a review of Max Blumenthal's book, which exposed or, you know, it exposed, but it, it was a, just a brilliant uh, takedown of the Israeli government and its occupation of, of Palestine. And Matt does wrote at a time at that time when, when Max published that book, it was a bit, you know, it, it was a bit ahead of its time. It hadn't been normalized yet inside establishment Washington that you can, it's okay to criticize Israel. And so Matt just wrote a book, wrote an article basically attacking Max's book and drawing a, 
an equivalence between him and some extremist Zionist. It was it was ridiculous, and that that speaks to a careerism that um, people in D.C. have, and it means that when there's a proxy war that threatens all these horrible consequences and is already horrible enough in itself, Matt Dust will say that that uh, we should support it, and that's why Bernie voted for the $40 billion Ukraine proxy war bill recently. And that's why Matt does says that Biden's position on Ukraine is the responsible progressive position. That's literally a direct quote. And that, that, that's just what it, how it is in Washington. Right it now. betrays a lack of imagination on his part. But, and just to be clear, I always thought this was funny, but the book you're talking about is Max Blumenthal's Goliath. Yeah. And I always thought it was funny because Matt Stoller then comes out with another book called Goliath. And uh, I think, you know, Max Blumenthal's the original Goliath. I haven't read the Matt Stoller book, though, but any case. Well, here, here. Eric, thank you for the call. Okay, Sam. Uh, you're a little faint, but yeah. No. Is this better? It is not. So we're going to skip you, Sam. But if you fix it, you can come back and we'll let you back in. Okay. Andrew. And Andrew, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. There you go. Uh, could you could you hear me now? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, well, my question, um, well, to, to just give a little background, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, a small um, twin island nation off the coast of Venezuela, the um, southernmost country in the Caribbean. And um, this conflict ha- has had a sort of strange implication for us because it's sent the price of natural gas so high. Um, it's, it's changed our our immediate economic outlook quite significantly. Um, like our energy minister was paraded on CNN, um, touting us as a nation that could um, possibly make up for the um, the demand in natural gas created by sanctioning Russia, um, because we have a, a very large capacity for producing natural gas. So, um, but the, the the other side of that is because this does sort of um, make us more entwined in the U.S. economic bloc. But our um, prime minister has um, long been um, talking about economic sovereignty and just um, strengthening the, the CARICOM block, for instance, in terms of economic um, cooperation. And um, the BRICS alliance seems to have been, in my view, strengthened quite significantly by this conflict. And um, I just wanted to know your thoughts on, um, on the BRICS alliance specifically and um, what this conflict means for, for economic cooperation going forward and how different outcomes to the conflict would, um, would affect that future. Well, I thought it was really significant that BRICS declined to follow U.S. orders and condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That, to me, signals that the U.S. doesn't have the control of the world that it used to enjoy. And for something so monumental, to have uh, that coalition of countries and BRICS to you know, break from the U.S., I, I thought was really significant. In terms of, you know, what it's... Um, longer-term potential for breaking free of U.S. hegemony? I don't know. It's it's tough. The problem is sanctions are so powerful. And it's sanctions still play such a big role in intimidating people. 
because if the U.S. wants to sanction your economy, it will not only go after you, but anybody who tries to do business with you. And yes, Europe is still uh, importing Russian energy. And that is a major issue right now for you know U.S. efforts to cut off Russia from the world. But you, the U.S. still very aggressively applies its secondary sanctions. And so I, I wonder, I don't have any predictions, but that's just what I'm looking at is, you know, to what extent um, the U.S. will try to cut off Russia by going after anyone who does business, who still does business with it, especially via sanctions. Because as I saw in Syria when I was there, the sanctions are a very powerful deterrent to reconstruction. Syria wants to rebuild, but it's having a hard time because anybody that it does business with, you know, buying cement or or whatever other materials it needs is going to be hit with secondary sanctions by the U.S. Now, Russia obviously is a lot more powerful than Syria and Russia also has the backing of China, so it's different. But the U.S. is very vindictive. You know, it's very, 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 very vindictive. Like, look what it's doing now to Afghanistan, continuing to steal Afghanistan's money just because the U.S. suffered a humiliation. So, but yes, I I watch these developments, what's happening with alliances like BRICS uh, with a lot of interest because if there is to be a way out of this current unipolar moment, it's, it's to be led by the countries of the global South. Definitely. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Anthony. Hey, good afternoon. Um, I was just wondering, you know, how I think the the left, quote unquote, in uh, Congress, they're going to have to back out of this at some point, the Ukraine thing. And I mean, uh, more than likely, they'll probably just stop talking about it altogether. But I don't know how many more voting items will come up on it. But, you know, I'm, I remember uh, Bernie Sanders made a big speech about uh, Putin's aggression and Ilhan Omar put out a statement prior to the 40 billion, you know, worrying, worrying about the consequences and then Cory Bush put a statement out after the 40 billion saying, yeah, I don't know why I voted for that. <laughs> but uh, so how are they going to back out of this? Like they're they just going to pretend it didn't happen. I don't know. It was kind of like Russiagate uh, culminated in the impeachment. And now they don't even talk about it. It's so weird. Yeah. Cory Bush's statement was so strange. First of all, to her credit, she was the only person who put out a statement trying to explain their vote for the 40 billion proxy war bill. Everybody else just pretended it didn't exist. They didn't put out a statement explaining why they just voted for a massive gift to the military industrial complex. There was an article this week in Jacobin that said that this bill that Bernie Sanders and the squad voted for will create at least something like $19.3 billion in revenue for weapons manufacturers and, and probably more. That was a conservative estimate. So basically more than, more than half of that $40 billion goes right to weapons companies. It's unbelievable. And they didn't feel compelled to explain it, except for Cory Bush, who acknowledged that the gift is a that that the bill is a massive gift to defense contractors, in her words. And she also said that she's worried about the possibility of direct military confrontation between the US and Russia as a result of this bill. So the question is, why did you vote for it? It's like she was giving an explanation for why she didn't vote for it, except she actually did vote for it. And how long they can continue to be incoherent, as in the case of Cory Bush's statement, or just silent like Bernie Sanders and everybody else, 
where they don't bother to explain their position. I don't know. That depends on grassroots pressure. And unfortunately, it's just a sad fact that pressure comes when people start to suffer. You know, so if we start seeing higher food prices, higher, even higher gas prices, those are the kind of things that will force politicians to act. Because right now, because the anti-war movement in this country has been so neutralized and because the media cheers when they, for these measures like $40 billion for a proxy war, they're not going to be pressed to have to explain themselves. So I think it's unfortunately going to have to take unrest from the base to get some answers. Yeah. Um, well, I forgot what I was going to say there, but oh yeah, I think they, they'd be just as fooled with China and Taiwan. They'd go along with it just as easily. That's all I think. Yeah. All right. I definitely, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought so before all this, but that's just, that was just my naivete. Abs- it's absolutely clear that, that these, that this crop of Democrats have zero either interest in foreign policy or zero courage on foreign policy where they're just even the most obvious cases where a progressive should vote no while there's so much deprivation in this country the idea of spending 40 billion dollars more in a proxy war is just insanity but the fact that all of them can vote yes and not feel the need to to explain themselves speaks to just them being totally craven when it comes to foreign policy so yes if a taiwan thing came up like biden said this week that he would defend taiwan militarily if China attacked. I have no, you know, if, if I were betting, I would certainly bet on the progressives being in lockstep with Biden, which is, which is very sad. Yeah. Right. Okay. Alex, you're up. All right, Eric, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So just so, so in no particular order, um, when the war, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, um, I, I have kind of a list of things I want to talk about, but just kind of in no particular order. Uh, the Ukrainian government basically said that you don't have to pay rent, you don't have to pay utilities, all of that. That is going away now. And so the, the economy is like really getting hit now. Things are really, you know, the chickens are really coming home to roost. Um, just, just prices for everything are just insane. The currency, the Ukrainian currency, has lost like I don't know, like half of its value. It's pretty insane. Um, okay, okay, wait, hold on. Let's let's talk about the things you wanted to talk about uh, on uh, the statement that Henry Kissinger made. He what he said was he, he basically advocated that Ukraine basically concede that it's never going to get Crimea and the separatist territories back. And he got a lot of crap for that. But that's because I think a lot of people think that Ukraine wants to liberate these territories. What Ukraine really wants to do is to basically prosecute the people who live in these territories because it sees them as traitors. Right. And practically speaking, like it would and the if Ukraine were to just recognize these territories as part of Russia or like promise them an, an enormous amount of autonomy if they were to become a part of Russia, it would pro- probably would end the war tomorrow. But I think a lot of Westerners think that who are critical of Kissinger's statement just don't know that. Like they don't understand right. it. Like I, I know this can be like really, sound really crazy, but since 2014, there have been less political freedoms inside Ukraine than inside Russia. And that's not to compliment the Kremlin or anything like that. It's just to practically speaking from 2014 onwards, 
Ukraine has practically been a military dictatorship. Um, and on the, you know, one thing, do you know, um, I saw an interview with uh, sort of a, uh, with a historian, his name is uh, Stephen Kotnick. He was like, he wrote a book about Stalin. Okay. And, and, he, and he, he, yeah, what do you want to say? No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, and he said that the West needs to support Ukraine until they decide they don't want to fight anymore. Problem is, even if you think that Ukraine, sh- even if you're a Ukrainian who thinks that, you know, who wants to make a case for, you know, compromise to end the war, you're pr- you're pretty much signing your own death warrant. So if you're a Ukrainian, you can't actually advocate for, for, for some kind of peaceful concessions, even if you wanted to. Plus, on top of that, yeah. there's a lot of Ukrainians who really want to continue the war, not because, not for you know, any logical reason, but they want to, a lot of Ukrainians understandably want to continue the war with Russia because they just want to kill Russians after all the atrocities that they've committed, which I get, but you know, what's, what good is that going to do to anybody? Uh, Okay. I mean, it'll do the West, it'll do us power a lot of good, but practically it's not going to do them any good. Um, And the other thing is I think a lot of Ukrainians, one thing I actually, I remember I was speaking with a Ukrainian the other day and I realized that a lot of Ukrainians, you know how I told you Ukraine is like has less political freedoms than in Russia. Like a lot of Ukrainians don't actually know that because like a lot of Ukrainians have been very sort of disillusioned and disengaged for the past eight years, and they think they believe all the propaganda that Ukraine is on this on its on a path to becoming a European style liberal democracy. And then when you tell them, well, actually, no, you basically there are no political freedoms um, if you act if you criticize the government you'll be accused of criticizing the revolution and being a traitor and being a pro-russian puppet and you're you could you could you could die like realistically you could die yeah i, I, yeah. I, I, don't, that, I just that, don't know i mean that that all makes, i just, I just don't track. see any hope on the horizon well what you're laying out there tracks very much with what i've heard and yes in terms of hope on the on the horizon i don't have any either but it's also you know, it's there's only so much we can anticipate and speculate. Who knows how things are going to go? But yeah, things are not are not looking very good right now. Yeah. Oh, and a couple a couple kind of like little tidbits here and there. Uh, the Ukrainian government is like passing a lot of like pretty insane laws, or it's testing the water by proposing a lot of like really crazy laws. So basically, they're practically eliminating, trying to eliminate labor rights. Yeah, um, I've heard about, on top of that. Yes. Yeah. On top and of that, they're. And let me They're say quickly that this, yeah. this has been a, this has been a project of the coup government since 2014. A part of the reason why they got why they got rid of Yanukovych was because he was refusing to sign what essentially was a death warrant for his country in this EU association agreement that would have imposed all this neoliberal austerity and ended uh, energy subsidies and cut pensions. Well, actually, let me let you, me kind of uh, push back on what you're saying here. This law is so egregious that a lot of the uh, that there are a lot of people inside Ukraine arguing that this law is actually going to undermine Ukraine's prospects for joining the European Union. So I don't. I, I think this is just sort of a this is sort of a wartime economy kind of thing. I don't think it's related to like sort of uh, giving into like EU demands or anything like that. So okay, well, my, you know. I just see that there's there's been a project inside Ukraine since 2014 to, you know, uh, privatize energy, enrich Western-friendly oligarchs, all that stuff, cut pensions. And I 
you know, I see the attacks on labor now as being a part of that, but we can agree. We, we can agree to disagree. Okay, Alex, I've lost your audio, so I'm going to move on to the next call. Thank you. For oh, wait, wait, I got it. Hold on, hold on. One, hold on, hold on. Yeah, I'm back. Okay. John Michael, you're up. Hey, man, how's it going? How you doing? Good. Good, good. Um, so, yeah, I've been um, – love your work, by the way. Um, you and Jimmy Dore have really opened my mind. The gray zone, all your reporting has opened my mind up to – you know the the how American imperialism has really shaped our world and like my own journey and kind of like waking up to all these facts has been like like 2019 I started listening to alternative media Tim Pool um, kind of showed me how the media lies especially around like how they lied about Trump all all, all the real shit they should have been reporting on they they cheered on like the Syrian attacks. And then all the, the banal bullshit is what they lied about. So that opened me up to how media lies. And then I started listening to more lefty media, Jimmy Dore, uh, you guys at the Gray Zone, Brianna Joy Gray. And that, that opened my mind up to what American imperialism is and and U.S. propaganda. And so, like, so I want to talk, talk about uh, propaganda. And uh, I really see how I, I'm, I live in Panama. And I, when I talk to Panamanians about Ukraine, I mean, I see the same almost propaganda model from, from news stations here. So they got like a couple, they got this uh, Telemetro and TVN. And I mean, it's, it's, it's practically repeating what people hear from U.S. mainstream sources. Yeah. And, uh. And, and I mean, it's crazy. I never thought, like, I actually just got done reading Manufactured Consent because of everything, you know, I always hear you and Jimmy Dore talk about it. And um, and I see that same model, the propaganda model, played out here. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, U.S. propaganda has a breadth far beyond U.S. borders. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on, like, how... How do you, you know, work to like if you talk to somebody who maybe is propagandized? I don't, I don't say that in like a disparaging way because I mean, yeah, yeah. Who has it? Who hasn't been? Who hasn't been under that thumb before they finally realize, kind of, get the real idea of what's going on? But what do you do when you talk to maybe a friend or a peer who, who you respect and or it's a it's a close loved one you love and care about? uh, How do you try to open their eyes to the propaganda system, U.S. imperialism. And so, I mean, I guess I'm talking, it's kind of, if you're talking to someone who is an American and they, yeah. Yeah. And they believe all these things, they hear, especially on Ukraine, like I had a buddy of mine, you know, him and I are, he's a, a friend of mine from like, you know, we were, since we were one, two years old, I mean, he's one of my best friends and, you know, our political differences aside, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all good between us, but I we're, we've been vigorously debating since February 24th everything around Ukraine. You know, I'm I'm telling them the stuff I'm hearing from you guys at the Gray Zone, Jimmy Dore, um, alternative news, and he's you know repeating. I mean, I mean it's literally line for line. No, Russia is 
you know, Russia's got the, the they're they're unorganized. They don't know what yep. their mission is. All this shit, and he, he says it like you know, it's fact. And then if I you know I bring up Scott Ritter, like well look here's what this you know ex UN and, and weapons analyst is saying, and he comes back with well he's a pedophile. And I'm like, okay, well, then I go research, and then there's that thing. I, I commented on you and Katie Help, uh, one of your posts about it. And and it's, and I don't know if that's true or not. It seems kind of true. All the, the, he got like caught by, uh, like an undercover cop who was, who was dressing up as an underage girl. You know, I don't know. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, I look, only know as much as I, I read. I but, don't want to go. I don't want to go too deep into Scott Ritter's story because it's it's out no, there. I, I don't either. But yes, but he, but he was yes he was convicted. He was he was convicted for online activity. So basically, trying to meet up with someone who he was told was a minor, and also some other you know some also some 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 exposure to. That's what he was charged right, with. Right. Uh, he, but, you know, he, he made, yeah, there was never any actual physical contact with between him and oh, yeah. minor because the minor was basically and the minor in the equation was an undercover cop pretending to be a minor. And right, so, right, right. look, he did his, yeah, he did his time. And look, people are free to dismiss him if they want to. I, I, I get it. Um, yeah, you know, I. But well, that's my I, point. But, is that is that the, he, he, every time I mention some all. You know, this Jimmy Dore, he's saying the serious strikes were bad. Like, well, okay, well, here's Aaron Mate's reporting OPCW. Like, here are, there are documents and there are facts. Yeah. But he immediately comes at, much like anyone who's been propagandized in the U.S. propaganda yeah. system, ad hominem attacks. And that's what I wanted to get at with the whole Scott Ritter thing. So I, you know, I believe yeah. well, in look, second look, chances look. and so, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, look, I mean, so, I mean, the only advice I can give is, you yourself have to not be attached to any outcome. So you have to, you recognize that we, we live in a very powerful propaganda system. And also that when we have beliefs, no matter what it's about, it's about politics or whatever, we're very attached to our beliefs. And so when you're arguing with someone, you're, you aren't just arguing with them about facts. You're also arguing with them about their whole way of seeing the world. And people don't want that to be challenged. So my <laughs> advice would be not to take anything personally. Don't be attached sure. to an outcome. And try to identify at least common ground areas where everybody can agree on certain facts. So, for example, on the Iraq war, there's no dis- or, or I mean, for most people, at least, it's a now established fact that the Iraq war, WMDs, all that stuff was a lie. We were lied to. Right. And so that is so if someone accepts that premise, then I guess just ask them to consider, well, are, there, are you open to the possibility that there's other cases of that that are still ongoing where our media and our politicians are saying one thing, but the reality is different. They're actually concealing the reality from us, you know, and um, see if they're open to that. If they're not, then that's their choice. But this, and there's, just no, there's nothing you can do. Uh, one question before you go. <laughs> go ahead. Have you seen have you seen the Panama deception as a documentary? Uh, the, about the Panama Papers. Is no, the Panama to? Deception. No, no, oh, no the I Panama haven't. Deception. Okay, well, look, if you're living in Panama and you want to, um, you know, study manufacturing consent for war and how it's uh, especially impacted Panama, go on YouTube and look up the Panama Deception. It's about how the U.S. manufactured consent for the invasion of Panama, which I think was 1980. Yeah, yeah, I think 89. Yeah, so go watch that movie. It's brilliant. And it. 
you, you see the, how the media reported it in the U.S. and what the government said and what the reality was on the ground and how it's, a, it's the classic, you know, it's, and it's a lot of parallels to what we're seeing today in Ukraine. Very, very similar situation. So I really I, I, I constantly talk to like 40-something Panamanians and I always want to know, like, what was their experience? You know, were they in what they call the interior, which is every, everything west of Panama yeah. City? Um, yeah. You know, what was their experience? There's a lot of people I've talked to who were, were in Panama City when bombs were dropping, and the stories are, I mean, they're crazy, man. But it's well, horrible. Check that but out, it, man. I mean, uh, the U.S. burned whole neighborhoods to the ground, killed a lot of civilians, and that was all covered up. And, you know, and sided with some very reactionary right-wing forces, which the U.S. always does. And, yeah, but since then, though, <laughs> the, but, but, but since then, the invasion was successful and that Panama, at least in my experience, as you were talking about, has gotten a lot more integrated into the U.S.-led order, that it really follows U.S. dictates and really adopts the U.S. stance. And it's, it's you know, no. that's... So get so get this. I was just I was I was I was at a work trip in on in Cologne, which is a province north of Panama City, and I was talking to my counterpart there, and he was telling me that um, after the invasion, um, when Hugo Chavez was still president of Venezuela, the then the then president Panamanian president Mar- Martin Torrijos, who is the the son of Omar Torrijos, who was killed. I assume by the CIA when they blew up his plane, or Noriega, Noriega did, but Noriega was an agent of the CIA. And um, Martin Torrijos, he went to talk to Hugo Chavez about um, um, doing uh, trading oil or buying oil from Venezuela, and, and Chavez was going to you know, give him at a good price. And then the U.S. You know, this is probably like 2000, I want to say, or may, or sometime in the 90s. I, I'm not sure. But, but you know, the U.S. puts, you know, they, no, no, no. Any Latin American unity or any any trading that's not with the U.S., you know, they're going to put the kebab on that, the kibosh on it. And, and, they, and they ended that deal between Venezuela and Panama. So it's... I... I 100% believe that story. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. And, and the and the and the Panama deception offers just critical background right. to how. Well, okay, so I will put a link to it in the episode notes for this for this episode. So, uh, John, thanks for the call. All right, dope. Yeah, thank you, man. Take care. Take care. Okay, Brian. Hey, Aaron, thanks for being here today. Um, I'll try to keep it relatively quick. I have two things real quick. One, uh, I saw an article yesterday that Russia has continued to attest um, some missiles with nuclear capabilities, the Zircon missile, um, and I'm wondering if you had heard anything about it and thoughts about it. The article I saw obviously framed it, framed it as Russia is preparing to launch a nuclear attack on London, uh, <laughs> which I think is a little far-fetched, but I do think it's a really dangerous kind of almost game of chicken we're getting into where they seem to be showing off their capabilities as a warning to us, but I don't think we're very interested in listening to those warnings. Um, so I'm kind of curious if if you've heard about those sort of tests and if you have any thoughts on that. I have not heard about those tests. I wouldn't be surprised though if they're happening. This is the that that this is what things have degenerated to where we have the two top nuclear powers 
being very aggressive. And so I wouldn't be surprised if these tests are carrying out, uh, being carried out. But but no, I, I must have missed it because I, I haven't heard of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I only saw it for the one source, so I don't know if maybe it was a bullshit story. And there again, it's they're just spinning something. But um, anyhow, so I, I, I was curious if there were if it was out there and there were people talking about it. So uh, um, yeah. Um, the other thing I just want to talk about, I actually more of a suggestion to everybody. Uh, I recently, uh, Netflix coming out with the show, the G word that's, um, with Adam Conover. And I really recommend this show. I think it's great for your audience. Everyone here, it is produced by Obama, but, um, he does, they do criticize Obama's drone campaign. They talk about, um, Agent Orange and our production in that. It's about all the good and terrible things that our government does in the U.S. Uh, and I think Adam would be a really cool guest if you'd be if you'd be able to get him for his blitties or something. I think that would be fun. Um, but so it's, you're saying, it's a really but, wait, but wait, but wait, Obama produced this show. Yeah, but it but it still criticizes saying... the drone program. <laughs> okay, and it's called the G word. The G word. It's on Netflix and. Uh, yeah, and apparently I saw another interview with him where uh, it, the, the the people work with Obama were like, "Do do we really need to talk about this?" And but his position is he's got to be you know as honest as possible about a lot of the things so that the audience has some trust with him. So yeah, he he calls out Obama for that. He he interviews with him and at one point and goes, "Hey, what happened to that hope and change that you talked about back <laughs> in 2008?" And so. Um, you know, obviously I wish you'd push back a little bit more on them, but there's so much, only so much you can do in those things. But I do think it's right. worth checking out, and I do think people would get a lot of it. And there's a lot of just interesting things in there as well. So uh, I think that'd be fun for a lot of people. Okay, well, thanks for the recommendation. I have a, I mean, I have a hard time believing that Barack Obama is going to put out something that is genuinely critical of him in a, you know, really serious way. But I'd, I'd love to be pleasantly surprised. So I'll, I'll check it out and. Uh, and uh, thanks for the recommendation. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Aaron. And Aaron, if you're there, there's a uh, microphone button in the bottom right that you put. There you go. Are we good now? Yeah. All right. Good. Thank you for taking my call. Um, so I think if there's anyone to listen to about uh, – how to come to a negotiated settlement in a kind of unwinnable conflict. Kissinger would be pretty high on that list. So definitely considering what he has to say, um, at least with deep thought seems valuable. Um, but there's a lot of pessimism and I keep growing a little more optimistic about what's happening in Ukraine. And hmm. I don't see how you can, uh, well, it's hard to be optimistic about a war, but again, viewing it, from uh, the way Kissinger would, which he would say there's really, in geopolitics, there's only a choice between, you know, two evils or multiple bad choices, and you have to find uh, the lesser evil. And as the war goes on, perhaps there's a way to come to a negotiated settlement that's beneficial for the U.S. and the West that also allows the Russians to, in the meantime, destroy the very hardline, I mean, really the wacko Nazi regiments. And uh, I don't know how you don't send aid at this point, too. I, I don't know how, I don't know, it just seems like a difficult spot to abandon 
the Ukrainian side at this point when you're really stuck, uh, stuck with kind of an ally and that uh, perhaps even a bigger number of aid announced would maybe incentivize Russia to come to the table earlier and to prevent the use of those funds or even more force in the future. I mean, that seems to be a thought process that might make some sense. Um, I don't know so, if you so see any send, optimism in the situation you're saying, at all. You're saying send even more weapons to Ukraine, and that might incentivize well, Russia. Well, yeah, to... I, wonder, I wonder if you announce a bill that, you know, I don't know what the number would be, but they said $40 billion, and who knows what's going to happen with all that money. But, you know, I mean, there's a thought process where the stronger you come out, you announced a hundred billion or something. Maybe that sends a message, and you get to the negotiating table sooner, and you don't have to send as many weapons over time because you reach a negotiated settlement more tilted toward your side, where you get uh, more of what you want sooner. It seems that that thought process actually could make sense, uh, but again, you know, it's difficult to predict. So yeah, I wonder what do you Sorry. think. Did I did I mishear you? Said you said a, a Jewish side. No, okay, Jewish sorry. side. Okay, sorry, I I misheard you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I, 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 no, sorry. Your I, side? Maybe I said yeah, your maybe, side. Maybe or... I, I think I misheard you. Um, the uh, look when it comes to the issue of sending more weapons, I'm in the Mearsheimer camp, John Mearsheimer, who says that you know, and this is like the realist school of thinking that whether you like it or not, great powers when they see their core interests at stake are going to act in overwhelmingly aggressive ways. And that's why, given that Ukraine has been a red line for Russia for a very long time, go back to William Burns when he was ambassador to Russia under Bush, warning in a cable put up by WikiLeaks that for the entire Russian political establishment, Ukraine's a red line and Russia will go to war to enforce it. And so I just think no matter what you do militarily, given Russia's size, its military dominance, and its stated position, that I just don't think you're going to defeat Russia in that war. I just don't see it. Now, I could be wrong, but... um, Well, the goal... Yeah, that wouldn't be the goal um, to... You know, the goal wouldn't be to intensify... You know, but what I'm saying is that the goal would what be I'm saying is that, but it, but it will intensify conflict. If, if, yeah. if you send more weapons, it will intensify conflict. And I just think, no matter what, get, by virtue of Russia's size and position, I just think it has a, I think it has the ultimate advantage. And so that's why I think. Well, what are these people supposed to do in you know the State Department and Europe or whatever when it comes to negotiating something? Well, here? why not? Obviously, they can't. I don't know. Well, why not uh, accept? Why not accept neutrality for Ukraine? Like, why is that such a impossible thing to swallow? It's sort of been the stated policy anyway. I think what's been driving the rejection of it is that just people inside Washington and elsewhere have such an animus toward Russia that they don't want to give it even a token win. But I think they have to abandon that. I think they have to let that go. Just let, just give up on this idea of using Ukraine as bait for Russia. Let it be neutral. And accept some, you know, I don't know how the the issue of the Donbass ends now, because now you have a war and you have these territories declaring independence and Russia, you know, taking steps to incorporate them. So we're not going back to Minsk, but something along those lines that could, you know, leave the rest of Ukraine at least intact and not lead to it being even destroyed even more, because that's, that's the alternative. I don't think this ends any other way, but just 
more death and destruction for Ukraine. And I don't think I don't think Russia will allow itself to to lose. They've already baited them into the war, and so now I guess, and now they have you know other nations begging to come to uh, more Western weaponry. Finland, Sweden. I don't know how that's going to rule out if Turkey is going to stop that or not. Uh, yeah, but it would seem they've already forced. You know, this move has already forced a lot of Ukrainians too really uh, firmly established a pro-Western tilt in the politics there and a fear of Russia that yeah. was there before and maybe even growing. And I would yeah, imagine that they're going to try to seize on this to really try to get Russia to back down as much as possible and also indicate to China that they cannot uh, move their forces around a lot. But it seems like maybe a lot of the State Department people and in the White House are kind of role-playing like it's 1960 and they're not up against the same kind of uh, enemy they were up against back then. Yeah, uh, yeah, but. I agree with that. All right, Aaron, thanks a lot for the call. Oh, appreciate thanks. it. Okay, Lance. And Lance, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you press to unmute yourself. Hello, hello. Hello. Aaron, yeah, this is a glitchy. I'm familiar with it, and it gets glitchy though. You have to uh, kind of leave, leave and come back, and that's what happened. Anyway, you know, if I this whole thing, whether can I make a larger point than just this Ukrainian thing because it it, it involves like the forty million billion dollar unanimous vote in the Senate. Sanders, Bernie. Okay, so two thousand eight, Obama gets elected. There's a guy named Greenberg, I think his name was Pulitzer Prize winner, I believe, and he wrote for the Little Rock Gazette. And of course he won because, you know, he talked about Clinton days in Arkansas. So he, we should have known what we were getting in 1992, kind of. Same thing with Obama. When 2008 happened, I was already skeptical. I said, and this is what I said in 2008. I said, let's watch because there were some things said about Obama that have only been like amplified like tenfold or hundredfold. I said, it's going to be like a Mexican hat dance, the hat being progressive policies. They're going to dance around it and dance around it and do everything they can not to touch the hat. That's what progressives did starting in 2008. And that's their job. So, you know, I said they're going to pirouette. They're going to do kabuki theater. They're going to have all kinds of all kinds of fancy schmancy about why we can't get it done. And that's what they did from 2008 to now. So here's my point. General point. It's, you know, Biden is like the three card Monty where you don't have just the guy challenging a person there's two or three people in the crowd that are going to fake lose fake win you know they're all part of it that's the squad that's bernie they're out there to be assisting incognito assisting the shill so whatever money they win or lose they go into a back room and they divvy it all up and by the way about uh, biden taking bernie's call that's the first call he'll take they could have a little high five and say boy we sure put it over on end didn't we we got all the money we want for war thank you bernie so he's his number one guy now here's my point we talk about QAnon, tinfoil hat, people that are homeschooled, taught that the earth is 5,000 years old, uh, and God wants everyone to have a gun, and all these tinfoil hat people, they get what they want. They go wackier and wackier. They go from already right wing to Tea Party to this. They get what they want. They're not fooled. They'll primary you. It's goofy. It's crazy. Now let's look at, and I'm channeling my inner George Carlin here, who doesn't want to blame politicians, right? What do we have on the left? We got Clayar down there against Cisneros. For years, we had uh, Cedric Richmond, number one cancer alley, one of the worst, worst, worst in terms of you couldn't be a Republican and treat your, your constituents any worse. 
Okay, Cedric Richmond gets bumped up to a first chief assistant to Biden, and now he's wherever he went now into the revolving door. Okay, that's him. And there was someone in, I don't know if it was Corey Bush's seat where she fought, where they fought, where the constituency finally let somebody voted for her, but it was another right winger, anti abortion, pro gun, pro corporate, you know, like a blue dog in a super bright blue district. Beto O'Rourke ran, he was some kind of big liberal. No. People, again, down in Texas will tell you he was a very moderate. He wasn't very progressive. A bright blue district. These are all shills. They're all kind. So here's my inner George Carlin. I'll finish here. To hell with the politicians. I'm not going to blame the politicians because if you have mediocre, corrupt, dishonest, weak, feckless politicians, it's because you have ineffective, weak, deliberately, you know, uneducated voters. You get a complete reflection of who you want. So I'm sorry. I'm going to start blaming voters. And I'm not going to just blame the tinfoil hat righties. I'm going to blame the people in blue cities. And I know why it happens. These people are getting whispered in their ear by the, and I saw it when I was, I get, I'm very involved in the left and movements and all the rest. And people come up in the paper that are, and I've worked with Walt Dixie is one example. As soon as his name comes up in the paper, and I used to go around and make money, you know, doing voting registration and stuff. He's a grifter. And all the pastors, I'm sorry, and I cannot say this as a white guy without constantly quoting black people, and that's only right. But it's the grifters, it's the pastors and the business owners. It's no joke. It's no big mystery why Clinton and Biden are so popular with blacks. It's because the team leaders, the precinct captains are all got their hand out to the grift, and they are telling people, don't vote for Bernie. He's going to tax you worse. And I, they're, they're telling people to vote for the right. people that are lining their pockets. It had nothing to do with politics. Lance, I, Lance, I got your point. I got it. Thank you. Thank you, Lance. Thanks for that. Thanks for calling in. All right, Paul. Hello. Hello. So, um, you know, I've been following this uh, uh, Russia hysteria for what has it been going on for 12 years or so? Um, And I, I, was very interested uh, the at the basis of all this, and um, I specific a program uh, that interviewed somebody called the Saker, uh, and uh, what he talked about was that uh, uh, Russians are not European. They uh, that there was the fall of the Roman Empire. Europe went into the Dark Ages. But that didn't happen in Russia. Uh, the the um, for another thousand years. So Russians are actually different <laughs> than Europeans, different than Americans. You know, and they they shouldn't be held to some Western uh, de- democratic edict. Uh, they have their own way of doing things and that they are really despised for that reason. And maybe this is what was behind, uh, um, you know, Hillary's demonization, Hillary's accusations, because they were an easy target. Okay. I didn't hear all that, uh, Paul. So, can you repeat maybe the, just the last uh, 20 seconds? Because it, it cut out a bit for me. Well, the, because the, the Russians are not Euro, uh, European. Yeah. They, they are 
are demonized. And I can see that in Europe, it's worse than here. The media is worse than here. Uh, that um, uh, this may be the basis of why it was so easy to demonize Russia. Because, yes, right, right, right. And nobody I ever I think that. That's, Yeah, I think that's an element, that there's a certain bigotry towards Russians, given their, you know, a Slavic identity, and also this idea that they're, you know, a Euro, uh, yeah, that that they're Eurasian, you know, and that allows this sort of uh, bigoted othering of them that you don't see when it comes to, you know, white Europeans. Uh, I think that's, or, or Aryan Europeans, I, I think that's fair. And also just the history of the Cold War, where Russia was the enemy, and you have the leftovers of that, which I think is still very much a strong current, especially inside the U.S. government. A lot of people, you know, during the Russia investigation, if you looked at the way some of the top intelligence officials like James Clapper and Peter Strzok spoke about Russians, it was really bigoted. You know, James Clapper was saying that, you you know, Russians have a genetic predisposition to being deceitful. He actually said that on national TV. And Peter Strzok said, F the mother effing Russians, they're cheating effing savages, you know, in, in his text messages to Lisa Page. And and these are the people who are, you know, leading the Russia investigation. And that their Russophobia was a big factor because they were so filled with contempt and animus toward Russians that when they see Donald Trump saying, let's get along with Russia, they flipped out. They couldn't handle it. And that was a driving factor. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they even op- opened up an investigation of Trump as a possible Russian agent, just based on what he was saying in public. They had no actual evidence for anything. So it's just, yeah, I think Russophobia is a major driving factor in U.S. policy, and it's not going away. And it's been very much embedded inside the U.S. media establishment as well. Yeah, just to finish up, and I appreciate your work. Uh, understand, there's a phrase in the uh, the elite in Washington describing Russians as white, and then the N word, or snow, snow, and then the N word. Uh, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, it is. It certainly is. Okay, thank you. Oh, thanks, thanks for the call. Thanks for the call. Okay, Ivan. Hey, hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I was wondering to hear your opinion. Um, like, I'm, I'm a Russian myself, living in Germany. And I'm, like, I agree with what you said about, like, certainly the uh you know the viewpoint uh of many people in the west like changing on ukraine and like i see it in the european newspapers as well 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 in german newspapers ukraine was number one spot for you know month uh now basically only the axel springer uh, the Bild newspaper keeps at it while others sort of like still keep attention on ukraine but they mostly talk now about inflation about rising costs of energy and i think that's partially why the talks about like further sanctions are being somewhat slow uh and that's all true and well but i was wondering your opinion because like i also read 
some of the Ukrainian media, since, you know, half of it is Russian and I sort of can understand Ukrainian. And like, even with all that, do you really believe that, uh, you know, it would be easy to convince Ukraine now that uh, Vladimir Zelensky has been pumped up as a, you know, hero for democracy. And I think Kiev Independent actually published a huge article as a response to New York Times where they said that Ukraine is, you know, the last bastion of democracy. <clears throat> and like, it, it's all been propped up for months. Like, how would it be possible to now uh, move back and sort of like say, okay, we need to make some concessions. We need to do that while Ukraine is really, really believes that it's like the last uh, force for good. Because at a certain point, you have to recognize reality. And there's only so long this whole media hype can go on where you keep pretending that Zelensky is some amazing statesman when really all he's doing is going to award shows and even graduation speeches. He, he spoke at Stanford to Stanford students on Friday. So what, like, is he going to keep doing this until he's doing like bar mitzvah parties and bachelor parties? I mean, it's, it's getting ridiculous. And so I, I just think you have people on the ground in Ukraine dying. We talked earlier about that article in the Washington post about how dire it was for one Ukrainian battalion. And that's, that's what is going to dictate the reality. So no matter what media narrative they built up, they, you know, it's just, if the war is not going well for Ukraine and if, there's unrest around the world as a result of higher prices. You just can't sustain the fiction. So whatever Zelensky is willing to go along with or not, you know, if he isn't willing to go along with what whatever the U.S. D- decides to do, then they'll find somebody else. You know, he has a little bit of capital right now because of his, his fame. But I think that eventually you just can't keep this going forever because it's, you know, there's only so much that a media war can can get you what what really matters is, is what's going on with the actual war that's that's true and well but uh, also what do you think about like the so-called neoliberals of europe like, how much influence do they have like the, the major allies of us which is like poland and the baltic states who also i think would be happy to you know to sanction russia until you know they choke on it yes. themselves do they have any influence yes. do you think as well I don't think so. I think they have an influence to the extent that they're parroting what powerful people in Brussels and Washington believe. And, you know, having them around is good because it helps justify spending on all that military equipment that you can then sell to the Baltic states. But I don't think they actually have much in the way of power. I think the real power is in Brussels and Washington. And I think eventually this will be too costly for them to continue. Um, that's my, you know, that's my prediction. I could, of course, be totally wrong, and we'll see. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, Evan. Okay, and Andrew, you will be our last caller. Hey, brother Aaron. Good to see you. Hello. Hey, you. Um, so I wanted to say a couple things. Um, just uh, well, Kissinger is a uh, somebody who prescribes to the real politic which is a primitive and inhumane philosophy. So I don't never was interested in him, but on, uh, I have a criticism, um, of, uh, using the word us hegemony, because I think it's kind of a misnomer. 
because I think the U.S. is a puppet government. Um, and when when I hear the word U.S. hegemony or U.S. Uh, like unipolar, I feel like it hides the ball. I think that um, if, you know, like uh, Ivan was just talking about how there are governments who seem to be complicit in the actions of the U.S. and um, as well as the uh, international media like Comcast and uh, Rupert Murdoch, 20th Century Fox, they're multinational corporations that own companies in, you know, countries all around the world. I mean, the biggest news station in Thailand is owned by Comcast and uh, which is also owns NBC, I believe. And uh, so what I'm what I'm getting after is that I feel like when I hear the word U.S. hegemony, that it's it's hiding the actual reality of what's going on and um, that the it, the U.S. is is really just a puppet state and it's uh, it's Department of Defense is subordinate to the CIA, which is subordinate to the the central bank and the, the multinational corporations like uh, British Petroleum or these sort of energy companies. And um, I just I uh, want to challenge you to find another word that uh, depicts uh, the uh, situation in a more uh, uh, accurate way. So that's my criticism. All right. So what word would you suggest or term would you suggest? I, I, I use a lot of terms like uh, the uh, central, um, central, centralized uh, authority, the central banking authority, the, um, uh, the multi, I see, I, I didn't actually come up with one cause I wanted to challenge you, but I use what I, the language that I use is use is, uh, like the central banking authority. Okay. Well, look, I, uh, so you're saying that basically that, uh, that, that I'm putting too much stock in the U S government. And really it's more about financial, a global financial elite. Well, not just, a- not just them, including the, so it'd be like the, uh, the multinational corporations and, uh, intelligence, uh, or the central banks that are backed by the, the intelligence agencies. I got you. Okay. Well, look, I, I see it differently because I really do see so much of these, same institutions as under U.S. control by virtue of the U.S.'s not just military power, which far surpasses everyone else, but also its financial power, too, where where you have U.S. corporations that own so much of the world. And so that's why I think it's fair to speak in terms of U.S. hegemony. But look, I I appreciate you sharing your perspective and I'll and I'll give it some thought. And if I if I can come up with a term that, uh, you know, that is that 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 works, I will. I will try it out. All right, Aaron. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the call. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. Thanks to everyone who called in and asked questions. This week, I don't think we are doing Monday morning with uh, Katie Halper and I on You Still Idiots. So I don't think we'll be doing that tomorrow because it's Memorial Day. I'm just verifying with Katie, but that's where we're at right now, I believe. And I also don't think we'll be back here on Colin because we usually do Colin after that, but I don't think we'll be doing that. I could be wrong though. So you might see us pop up and if so, great. If not, then we'll see you next time. Have a great rest of your day. Bye everybody.